You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. The scientist, the writer, the artist is challenged. If we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, the challenge must be taken up. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, where we love our institutions so much we have to burn them down. You can talk back at us at our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And whether you love to hate us or hate to love us, please go to iTunes and review the show. That helps other people find us. Now sit back and enjoy. No sense of decency here. Uh, this is Danny once again for the Sectarian Review Podcast. Thanks for downloading another episode. Today we're going to be talking about the philosophy, the concept, the lifestyle of minimalism. And so we'll be hitting on all sorts of topics like consumerism and shopping. And speaking of shopping, do you remember this moment? As we work with Congress in the coming year to chart a new course in Iraq and strengthen our military to meet the challenges of the 21st century, we must also work together to achieve important goals for the American people here at home. This work begins with keeping our economy growing. And I encourage you all to go shopping more. I love how our work consists of shopping. This is our patriotic duty uh, at that moment in history. Uh, and we'll get into that a lot more late, uh, later on in the show. Joining me today, uh, this is a, a very strange setup for me. I have two people in the room with me. I had to actually buy another cable to make this happen. Uh, but uh, but we... Uh, shopping. <laughs> I went shopping to make it happen. Um, uh, let me start with that first voice you heard. Uh, this happens to be my lovely wife, uh, Kim Anderson. Kim uh, is a big advocate of uh, the environment and that sort of thing and so she was really interested in this topic and got really excited when the idea of coming on the show was brought up and so Kim do you want to talk about yourself a little sure um, I guess that from a historical perspective I was an environmentalist before I was a Christian and then when I became a Christian um, environmentalism stayed a fundamental part of my belief I think that God called us to take care of the earth and um, I think that that's very important for us to continue to do. And minimalism has been, and we can talk about this later, but minimalism has been, um, not that we're extreme minimalists like you'll see in the video, but um, I think minimalism has been part of our lifestyle to some degree, not trying to accumulate too much stuff because on some level I think that it um, accumulating a lot of stuff adds to the environmental impact that we have in the world. 
Um, from a professional perspective, I have my MBA and spend a lot of time working in banking and have some teaching experience on the college level as well. Thanks, Kim. Um, and hopefully you'll hear more of her on the show uh, in the future. This one, it worked out for today perfectly. Uh, we are joined by uh, my good friend and pastor Rob Osborne, who joined us in the last episode for, our, he kind of saved me my skin for that listener <laughs> feedback episode. You say so. <laughs> Rob, Rob's back. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. And it'll be neat to, to unfold this. I think there's tons of, you know, and Kim touched on some of them, but tons of dimensions to this conversation, both uh, outward impact and inward impact for that matter. So, uh, yeah, I'm encouraged that it's being talked about on, on something that, you know, is, is defined as, as Christian. So. And I got to say, so a lot of the, I mean, the show was inspired by something you did uh, oh. in your capacity oh. as pastor. Okay. You had the church you didn't make us, but you uh, you hosted the church uh, for a screening of the film that we're going to be talking about today called Minimalism. Uh, and, and we had a, a really cool discussion about it. Um, and I guess as the as our discussion today progresses, I'm sure that we'll talk about the spiritual aspects and why sure. this was important for a church body to, to watch and think about. Um, but we'll get into that um, as we go. Uh, the What's kind of, I guess, this what will center our discussion, although we'll kind of branch off beyond it at times, is a film. It's on Netflix. Um, I don't know if permanently, but for now, it's been on Netflix for a while. It's called Minimalism. Uh, the importance, or what is it? The What's the subtitle again? Yeah, good uh, question. The important things, or something like that. Um, uh, I have it. A in film, my notes here. a film about there or something. A documentary about the important things. Yes, uh, and that's the name of it. And you'll find it. It's not that long. It's not quite an hour and a half, I don't think. And so, uh, it's well worth your time. Uh, whatever your reaction to it is going to be. Um, I actually have a clip of one of the two minimalists uh, uh, speaking at a TED talk, uh, and I give you just to give you a taste of their presentation. This is Ryan uh, Nicodemus. Anyway, yeah, we can talk about death. Let's see, uh, seven years ago, I was 28 years old, and up until that point in my life, I had achieved everything I ever wanted. The six-figure salary, the luxury cars, the closets full of expensive clothes, the big suburban house with more toilets than people, and all the stuff to fill every corner of my consumer-driven lifestyle. Man, I was living the American dream. And then my mom died, and my marriage ended, both in the same month. And these two events forced me to look around and start to question what had become my life's focus. And you know what I realized? I realized I was so focused on so-called success and achievement, and especially on the accumulation of stuff. Yeah, I was living the American dream. But it wasn't my dream. And it took getting everything I thought I wanted to realize that everything I ever wanted wasn't actually what I wanted at all. You see, just a year earlier. Uh, he goes on. Uh, but uh, that gives you a taste of the motivation. Uh, you've, a couple of people were sort of disillusioned with American success, right? And this film sort of follows them. Rob, do you want to kind of set up the film and just sort of talk about it? And then we can maybe discuss it as a film. Sure. The film follows uh, Josh, Joshua Fields Milburn, which actually that was him there. And then Ryan Nicodemus is the guy with the cool wavy hair. But yeah, they're both uh, uh, young, youngish. Would you character? I mean, 30s, I would say. Yeah. And uh, they had some success in corporate culture, both of them working for the same outfit and then uh, decided uh, both through some just some interior questioning and also just uh, dissatisfaction with what was happening in the world to 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 take a turn 
uh, and Josh first, uh, Ryan followed. And so this is part of their brand. They wrote a book together. They went on a tour together. They did this film together. And so it's a, it's a collage really of a lot of different uh, ideas, mostly around minimalism. Although, I, um, you know, they, they did include a few things that I, that I think were kind of I don't, just random, but, but yeah, it, it all cohesively comes together to narrowing a focus and, and not doing compulsory consumption, which is it, it, the gist of, of minimalism. And, uh, you know, it's, it's done well. It ended up over on Netflix. And, and as far as I know, it, it has, as documentary, it's popped up in the top five or 10, uh, several, several times. And, um, but it's more than, more than that. I think it sparked a discussion around the idea of what is such kind maybe a cultural, uh, problem for, for us in America, and that is, you know, our sort of compulsory compu- uh, uh, consumption. So, yeah, and I don't know that they arrive at any hard conclusions. They, and sometimes they come on a little bit strong, uh, but uh, I think they give us things to think about. They're big huggers. They, they oh yeah, that's they too. Yeah. aggressively grab everyone who comes <laughs> yeah. near them. I'm and, a hugger, man. Yeah, they <laughs> should be called hug me. Minimalism. Yeah, it's a little unnerving at yeah, times, actually. Um, yeah, especially know. for those of us that aren't huggers. But, <laughs> exactly. Um, I think Rob touched on an important point that you said it, it's part of their brand. Yeah. And one question that I had in watching the show, and I think that is an important question in general, is is minimalism its own form of consumerism i think you think of them as opposite i think it they want you to think of them as opposite but in a lot of cases i think that um minimalism comes with its own set of products and its own set of um i mean i think they're selling their own products and they even say one of them says um we're out to share a recipe each person might have their own ingredients and i think that there's this assumption in the film that they're it's going to lead to happiness for them it did for everybody it might not necessarily um and there's also an, uh, there's a couple throughout the film um that where the the woman had ms and they talk about how she um it, and it's true that with a lot of medical conditions they say to reduce stress and things like that and that will lead to either healing or feeling better but she they talk about how um, she started to feel better when they minimized. And there's the quote by the husband. He says, by getting rid of these things, um, I'm sorry, in our lives, these material items, this excess, good things happen. And um, so not only are they implying that it leads to happiness, but somebody explicitly said good things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, It almost implies that she was healed because of minimalism. And I think that... um, you know, in addition, you, brand, I think, is a good point. Um, in addition to saying that it leads to happiness, there, there, you know, there are some people that f- have followed this philosophy that are coming right out and saying, I feel better, not physically, right. because of this. And that's not going to work for everybody. It's true. Yeah, Courtney Carver, I think, and she has a blog that's that's thrived, really. I think have more with less or do more with less. And her big sort of staple is that project 333 which is about Uh the clothing sort of thing that 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 she instituted which kind of caught fire virally uh yeah and people are people are doing that but i agree with you kim i think um there there is room for pushback on the assumptions that they create you know even if it's stated or unstated that you know this you're gonna you know you're going to an island of bliss because you you threw some things away and there's lots of people that live with less and they don't wait for a trophy for it or have some epiphany about it they just don't have as much you know and mm-hmm. um the, the the sort of the counter view I, I guess when i what i see 
Um, cause I, I read through the comments of the wrong, stupidly, he'd never read the comments. <laughs> Rob's I read a masochist. The, I know, exactly. <laughs> I read through the comments. I see a lot of pushback and I just, I, sometimes I feel like is the opposite of minimalism. What would that be? And I guess I think it, it's stuffism and, and I, I don't know anybody that's gotten better that way. <laughs> like, absolutely. You, you yeah. know, it's so, uh, yeah, I, but yeah, it's, it's mixed feelings, I guess, you know, so, I, you know. I totally agree. I just yeah. think that it's important to th- to point out that, that there are, almost implying that you know that you you will automatically be happier and (laughs) um and that it'll literally the good things will happen and it'll solve your problems and and it you know i don't think it's that easy yeah um and and i think that it also it comes with a set of products um you know and so there's the couple that she's pregnant and um i don't even honestly remember what the guy looked like i think the the woman talks more but um i guess that's goes without saying um but they they say they'd move from like a 1200 square foot home to i think it's a 460 square foot house and um and and there had been architects that were associated with trying to market this type of house and the the architects first of all say you know our ideal would be if if um people start to replicate building this type of house but but when you're when you're watching it if you pay attention in the background there's all these these types of products that I think go along with minimalism and similar types of tables. And then they've got, uh, what are the beds that pull out of the wall? Um, yeah, those hidden beds. Yeah. Yeah. There's a word for those Murphy beds. They've got, they have a double or a queen Murphy bed and then they've got, you know, um, twin Murphy beds that pull out of the wall. And those kinds of products are expensive, much more than just going and buying a, a Murphy or a regular bed at the store for your kids to live in a 1200 square foot home, which, by the average American standard is not that big of a house. And so, um, you know, in order to live that lifestyle, at least the way that that couple was living it costs you a lot of money. And, and I think that sometimes that comes along with, it goes along with um, a lot of products that, so they've just chosen a different set of products. So Yeah, I there's a, we'll get into sort of some economic issues later, but obviously the concept of conspicuous consumption is related to this, and uh, that concept was developed by a fella named Thorstein Veblen, and uh, and we'll talk a little bit about him. But there's such a thing called a Veblen good, um, which is something that is sought after because it's expensive, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So this is one reason I Apple uh, keeps its products. They don't make them cheap because that makes people desire them more. And that's a, a, a phenomenon that seems counterintuitive to normal economics. And I think you see some of that coming up in this film. And I, I remember when we watched this in uh, in church or after church, we didn't take a church service <laughs> yeah. to watch this. Um, we, it was a, a Sunday night you know, get together. Um, the uh, There was sort of a mixed re- reaction, I think within everybody. I think there were parts of it that were uh, people could get in, get on with. And then there were parts that were repellent, I think, to some mm. people. And I think there are paradoxes and there are sort of uh, uh a messiness there's a messiness to this right absolutely um and and so you guys have already hit on a lot of the topics that i think we could talk about in terms of this subject matter um there's a spirituality when you heard the clip uh, that i just played about the person's personal tragedy that very much sounds like a church testimony as much as it sounds like a a ted talk right um sure so there's like a, a secular spirituality to this uh which is in itself paradoxical uh and there is this uh consumerism or this anti-consumerism that also 
is a bit consumerist <laughs> in its mm-hmm. own way, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that's a paradox that makes this really interesting, I think. Um, and I want to just as a you know because someone who's interested in uh, uh, in film in general, just real briefly talk about the style of the film. There's so many shots I noticed from behind everybody who they're they're walking down hallways uh being interviewed by various people or they're in um big vast open outdoor places where the space kind of consumes the person right Mm -hmm. and so i think that's a a really purposeful framing technique that they use uh in this movie to sort of get at the idea that the human is not dominating its environment in Mm -hmm. minimalism right uh the environment human is sort of it in some way working in peace in that environment. And so I think it's a really, it's a beautifully shot film, I think uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I I think they did a good, it made it entertaining, you know, and some of the sort of side notes, side notes, I guess on minimalism, it almost hijacked the film for me, for instance, the inclusion of the, the tiny house folks and things like that. I mean, a minuscule number of homes, I think it's like one percent of all homes that are sold annually are are tiny homes, and then f- for those folks, um, I think the advantage often isn't a space factor as much as an economic uh, for them, because I think the majority of those folks. The last study I looked at on tiny houses, because it, it it kind of irks me that it, it ends up being included in this movie enough for me to like research. So like most of the like sixty eight percent are over fifty, uh, let's say uh, roughly, and then. Most of those folks do not have uh, any type of mortgage, and then they're using it either for a home office or using it for an in-law suite or, or other things like so. Primary residence is kind of an unusual uh, circumstance, and then the inclusion of of meditation, like you know, to sort of yeah. with, with Dan Harris. Dan Harris is an amazing sort Sam, of Sam Harris. Yeah. Oh well, uh, Dan, Dan Harris is the ABC uh, oh, news that correspondent guy. who get yeah with, with the meta yeah, and Sam does talk about Sam Harris does talk about meditation, but in, in Dan's thing, Dan's case is brand that ten percent happier stuff. Um, what what I think is lost there they didn't execute well on was what do you take away from ten percent happy being included? Hopefully, it's that if you exercise even a a mod- a little bit of minimalism. Let's say you get 10% happier. You know, w- wouldn't that be worth it? Because adding things is not making us happier usually at all. Right. Um, and, and so I thought, you know, that that was kind of the takeaway for that. And yeah, I don't think it's a panacea. I don't think it fixes every ill in society. But um, one of the things, and I'll interject this since we are kind of on the topic of spirituality, but Eugene Peterson, who is a guy who I, I look up to as far as a pastor, to me, is just a, a real, I mean, certainly the antithesis of a lot of what's hawked to pastors for, like, this is successful churches um but he says you know a pastor's role often foisted on them is to make stuff happen it's more important today to to be aware of what's happening and and, and speak into it you know where, where you sort of do some exegetical work on lifestyle and even in a place that you could make the argument is not economically robust like we're in stuffism is is very much like the unconscious yeah ism that that people live with and you don't have to it's not even a socioeconomic thing you don't have to have a lot of money to have to have junk yeah. just filling your house and so yeah so that that speaks maybe to the spiritual side of it a little bit you know just to be aware i guess yeah um as we get, kind of get into some more specifics i think about the the sure. the concept here uh i just want to back up and say one of the i have a couple of reasons that i'm interested in this topic one somewhat personal i i, I don't i told Kim I have to not harp on this the whole show just in case my mother ever listens to my show which I don't think she does but I'm sure she's a religious devotee uh, devotee of your show but 
um, not a lot of money, right? But the ability to collect junk in the house is just prodigious, right? And it, it, it wears on my anxiety, I think, a little bit. Mm. Um, and so I have sort of personal reasons to do that. And mom, if you're listening, you got to get rid of that crap. Um, uh, and so... Um, It'll cure you. It'll cure you. <laughs> You'll be cured. Yes. It's like a magical tonic. <laughs> it will make you happy. Maybe not everybody else. But, <laughs> but uh, um, so that's a, a sort of personal front. But this also really, I think, intersects with a lot of things this show has been interested in. Um, I, I can think of a couple of episodes right off the top of my head. Uh, the episode that we did about the book Shop Class of Soulcraft was very much interested in um, our relationship with objects and, and our goods and, and our kind of spiritual relationship, basically, with our material world. Uh, and I think this is very much uh, akin to that show. And uh, I also did the show um, where I talked to the folks about um, Lazarus at the Gate, which I think uh seeks sort of spiritual answers to this consumption problem right and sees consumption as a spiritual problem uh so if you're look to explore more about uh this topic within this show there's a couple of episodes for you uh to take a look at and in the future i i've been wanting to trash hgtv for for months anyway and so uh this might be <laughs> the uh, motivation i need to do the hgtv show and, and whatnot uh, and then uh, Dave uh, Ramsey's Financial Peace University, I think, is intricately related to the to these ideas of consumption. Um, and I think it's one of its problems for me. If you like Dave Ramsey, God bless you. Um, bless your heart, as they would say down south. Uh, so, um, um, but that's the context for the show for me. Um, I, let's get into this isn't just these two guys, right? The show makes it almost seem like they're the prophets. They're John the Baptist uh, yeah, sort yeah. of bringing the message to the world. Um, right. There's a very religious overtone to this, uh, to this movie. Yeah. And, and, and uh, we'll get into that more as we go on here. But um, uh, minimalism is something that is sort of bigger uh, than these two guys. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the broader uh, subject matter uh, and whoever wants to. to... Yeah. The, um, the topic of minimalism, I first intersected with it through Josh Becker, who they include in the film, but um, in, a, in a lesser role, I think, than I anticipated when I saw that the subject was minimalism. And, um, and, and add, add to him, there, there were other folks along the way that have, that have kind of talked about the topic. But, can, I, can I pause you right yeah, there? Yeah. I actually have a clip of Josh Becker. Oh, uh, great. And, and he's a he's Journey Church, I believe, is the name of his Out in Arizona, uh, of right. his church. Yeah, and mega, so I think a, pretty much a, a mega church, a big suburban mega church. Right. And so here's a little clip of him in a sermon. It sounds remarkably similar, I think, to the clip I played from The Minimalist. If you notice this, I come this morning with a simple message. The simple message is this, that there is more joy to be found in owning less than we can ever find in pursuing more. This is a message that I think we all know to be true. Unfortunately, since the day we were born, we have been told the exact opposite. We, of course, live in the suburbs, and statistics will tell us that on average we see 5,000 advertisements every single day, a million by the time we reach the age of 21, and they all tell us the exact opposite message. They all tell us the same thing, that we will be happier if we buy whatever they're selling, whatever it is, soda, insurance, cars, clothes. 
uh, and that's the beginning of a sermon, uh, basically. So uh, yeah. it, this is a, a he has a religious reason for this lifestyle. Go yeah, ahead. yeah. It sounds like it could be lifted, like you said, right right from the film, and so it, it follows his uh, home life. They they zero in on him, and I think probably because he has he has children. He had, they have two. They're born a girl, and then Leo. Bowel, I, I'm not going to say his name right. He has six children, and so they, but they don't, they don't broach the subject of how he manages minimalism at home. And uh, along this, as this sort of topic is unfolded, a, a voice uh, in the arena of, you know, cleaning up uh, extra household items is uh, Marie Kondo, who wrote a book, uh, you know, The Art of Tidying Up, and um, she skyrocketed into the New York Times bestsellers list. Stayed there for the better part of the year, as far as I know, and. The, the gist of her book, um, I'll save you even buying it, is, you know, you're supposed to get rid of things that don't spark joy. Like if you pick something up, even if it's uh, memento or, or something like that, if it doesn't instigate joy in you to, to get rid of it um, and to do that in one fail swoop, to not try to do it, like as we normally do, kind of chip away at it. And that really uh, got a lot of energy and interest. But there was you couldn't nearly say equal amount of pushback, but there were some pushbacks. Some people thought, well, that's just an absolute dream world kind of scenario for most people, particularly with, with children. Um, and, and so what Josh Becker says that I think is valuable when we have kids and we think about getting rid of things, um, kid, children, young people, having them in your home makes minimalism more challenging, but it also makes it more important. I think uh, if we're not teaching, and I'll get a little preachy here for a minute, if we're not teaching our kids about limits, um, then we're instigating more of a problem that, that's already existed in our culture, I think. And what, what he has as a governing principle, he says, you know, for his kids is whatever fits in the closet. I just finished like just a 12 week class of Josh Becker's called uncluttered where, you know, he, he uses all these different voices to try to both Courtney is in it and, and some others to try to get us to the point of, of having owning less. And so they do the project three through, which I, which I've done with mixed success. I'm kind of a poser with project three through three, the clothing thing. I, I do 40 things counting my watch my shoes and all that stuff. And uh, I've been at it for a little while. And the whole point of it is, and I'm going to circle all the way back to Marie Kondo. Um, the whole point of it is, I think, is is giving attention to, to our ownership and our accumulation of things. If, if your version of minimalism doesn't look like these folks, then consider them the monks of the, of the thing. Like they're going as the ascetic out into the wilderness to experience things in a real crazy way. And they're coming back with their sort of, uh, you know, epiphanies. So, so take what works, leave what doesn't. What we don't do in one of the Christian communities sometimes is lean on the, the rhetoric with an AA, which is take what works, leave the rest. Mm-hmm. And if we do any of this, I think there's an environmental impact and people would argue it's small, but who cares? You do your part. Um, but it, I can share a bunch of statistics yeah. to tell yeah. you it's not small. But. I, what, no, no, I mean, I mean like individually, like, uh-huh. like if I individually, I'm mindful of what I'm doing yeah. and we compost rain barrel. I drive a four cylinder, you know, in, in, in the Laurel Highlands and a scooter. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, I mean, I, but at the same time, you know, I think that what I do, people could look at and scoff and say, why are you bothering? It's such a small percentage. But, uh, I think like you said, creation care, you know, which environmentalists, however you want to say it, um, is what we're to be invested in, regardless of the potential consequences. Like if that the only thing we do is consequence sort of, you know, like consequences have has its thumb in my back to do this. I think it's a rhetoric that that sort of falls flat for a lot of people. Whereas if we do things because I'm compelled to do it as a matter of love for God, 
I think that has a potential to interest people. And we can we can motivate people, I think, out of consequence. But, um, you know, and it, I, I'm sure you have the research that, to, to show that. And I think that that's, that's at least one more thing to push, to push people into this. You know, whether it's the psychological ramifications of owning too much, the consumeristic or the environmental, there, there's plenty of reasons. And I'm, I'm always sensitive about the, about the pushback minimalism gives because I think, what is your counter opinion? Again, I think it's probably stuffism and that's, that's hard to defend to me, but yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I want Kim to talk yeah. about um, the environment, uh, the environmental impact, I think, um, and how it relates to this. But before you get to that, I do think Rob has drawn out the niche, I suppose, that the minimalists, that's what they call themselves, Josh and Ryan, uh, they've carved, they've carved themselves out a niche for minimalism as this path to personal happiness, right? Mm. They never talk about the environment themselves. The show, the movie does. That's, that's Uh, a good point. Uh, for them, it's all about kind of achieving some sort of zen almost, uh, zen, sort of zen piece, uh, of within one's own life. And so there is a kind of, I don't want to call it self-centered in the negative with entirely in the negative context of that word. Um, but there is a, um, a self-centeredness to their version of minimalism. There are also other versions of minimalism that is more thinking about our impact outside of ourselves. Right. And, and this is, I think something Kim's really passionate about. Yeah. And I think that, um, so there's the, the impact, not just on the environment, but also on the, the people of the world. And, and I think, there's a couple different ways to look at the people. There's the impact on ourselves, but also the people around the world who are impacted by our choices. And um, just to give one example, um, because there's so many different products that you can look at. And a lot of my journey, especially over the last few weeks, as Dan started talking about doing this podcast, I happened upon a book at a library. I was looking for a book and wandered down an aisle um, trying to find something else and found a book called The the Story of Stuff by Annie Leonard. And she has several podcasts as well, not podcasts, videos on YouTube as well that are, the the main one is 20 minutes long and some of them are much shorter, but um, the main one is great. The, the book is very heady and has a ton of statistics and I love that. Not everybody would, but that's where I got a lot of the information that I'm going to share. But just to give one example of the impact that we might have. Um, I see that that Rob is wearing a t-shirt and um, I have one on. Dan has on a a collared shirt right now. Um, To give the example of a t-shirt, you think of a t-shirt, you you don't necessarily think when you go buy a t-shirt and Rob has shared that he only has 40, you know, items of clothing. And so that's, that's um, a lot less than, than we have. I'm I'm hiding quite a few until I decided this works, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But to make one t-shirt it takes 79 tons of materials and that includes things like trucks trains water bleach etc um to make um i'm sorry that's actually a ton of paper i'm sorry i i I thought that was an interesting um statistic as well so to make one ton of paper it takes 79 tons of materials um it takes five pounds of carbon dioxide to produce a t-shirt and that doesn't include transportation um patagonia a shirt um, Patagonia is kind of known as a better company. Um, one of their t-shirts travels 7,840 miles before it gets to the store where you buy it. Um, so don't buy it on vacation or it'll add exponentially more miles <laughs> to it already. So. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and, and who knows how far they have to ship it to get it to the store. So, 
Um, and I think I did have information. I I must have accidentally not put it in about how many, how much cotton it takes. It's I mean it's tons and tons of cotton to make one T-shirt. It's it's exponential. And maybe we can add that on the the website later. And cotton uses a lot of water to grow, right? Yeah, and, so, and it's yeah. it's a it's a large amount of water. Unfortunately, I had to return the book to the library. And <laughs> having read how much paper, how much um, material goes into making paper, I decided not to buy the book. I'm hoping to find it used somewhere. Um, um, in terms of the the impact on people, um, cotton uses a lot of pesticides. And in, in California, where you think of California as being an environment where they they have as much regulation as possible in the United States, probably in the world, um, it cotton is the number three ranked type of pesticide illnesses in in their state um, and in developing. And that's in a place where it's highly regulated in developing countries where probably most of the stuff that we wear in America is made. Ninety one percent of cotton workers that work that are exposed to eight hours of or more per day of um, of, you know, of of pesticides experience some type of health disorder. And I didn't write down all the different types of health disorders that they're experienced. Um, and then another product that, that I kind of became interested in after doing a lot of research is cell phones. Um, there's a great video by Greenpeace that, um, that I recently saw that talked about how smartphones have been around for 10 years and something like 7 billion smartphones have been made, produced in the time that smartphones have been around, which is one for every person on the planet. And if you think about it, most people on the planet haven't used a smartphone. And somebody in the video, I think it was the um, Sam Harris guy who calls himself an author and neurologist. Um, yeah, and famous atheist. Um, um, yeah. He points out that that these things are marketed to us so that, you know, as soon as one comes out, you want a new one, you want the better one, right? And so that's why there are so many smartphones that have been produced. And what happens to them is most of them are tossed. But um, there's hundreds of metals that go into to the production of cell phones and most of those are mined from from the earth and one of the things that's mined is coltan and that that's used in not just cell phones but things like um, playstations and things like that from a people perspective coltan is um it has been mined in australia and canada and places where we've got regulation but in 2000 the price spiked and um 80% of the world's resources were in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so thousands of people um, scrambled to to mine it and they pilfered it from national forests and just kind of destroyed the natural resources. So A, they're destroying resources and B, um, the way the people were treated was terrible. They, they hired children, they hired prisoners of war, they raped women. Um, the UN estimated that 45,000 women were raped in, in the um, year 2005 alone, 45,000 women for cell phones. Um, mm. Una King, a member of the British Parliament said, um, kids in Congo were being sent down mines to die so that kids in Europe and America could kill imaginary aliens on their living rooms. And I think that's a quote that kind of captures, we don't think about it. I love my, my cell phone. You don't think about it. Um, you know, in the past I would have thought, I'm just going to go buy a new one. When the new one comes out, you think, what are the great new features? It has a better camera. I can take better pictures. And, um, you know, our daughter even is kind of frustrated with hers, I think, because it doesn't have the um, the fingerprint detection or whatever, and she's begging for a new one. And um, if I were to explain to her, I don't even think she'd be able to get it, but if you would explain to the, our eight-year-old the impact that 
wanting a new iPad has on kids in the Congo. And I mean, that's just one place where metals are mined. I'm sure that this is replicated all throughout the world. So, um, you know, we don't think about these things, but it, it's happening. And when you get your cell phone, you don't know that the metal comes from multiple places around the world and it's mined and, and you can't get that metal back. Um, in, in America, a lot of our phones just go back into a dump, but in the EU, they require phone take back programs and they actually recycle them and, and take the metal. Um, so that's part of the, the environmental impact on just two of the products that we, we use and then send back into the, um, the earth without right. thinking about it. And so, I mean, how it's related specifically to minimalism. So instead of having 14 t-shirts, right? If you have six or something like that. Or, I mean, a lot of people have like 50 t-shirts. Right, right. right. I, I was being um, conservative. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that's less of a draw on other people, right? right? And the reason those things are so cheap to buy at Walmart or wherever you're buying them is that the price is the cost of them is distributed. It's, you're not paying the cost of them. The cost of them is taken out of the people that are working in sweatshops. The cost of them are, are is distributed along the line, um, and so that you can buy it for a dollar ninety nine or whatever at Walmart. And so, um, but there, it isn't just a product you buy that means nothing other than your pleasure, right? right. It actually is related to um, other people, and it has a severe impact on other people, and not always positive. Yeah, um, most. Yeah, most re like there's a building that collapsed in Bangladesh, I think, over the last 24, 48 hours. And there were some deaths connected to that. And here's a country that has, I think, Elizabeth Klein, she wrote a book back in uh, 2012 or 13 called Overdress, where she writes about the amount of our clothing that's made in Bangladesh. There's like 14,000 some odd factories in, in, in India, that in Bangladesh, I should say, that... Um, that are making a lot of our clothes. I mean, and, and because of, um, in, in 2013, a, a, a garment collapse killing 400 people. Um, some of those companies, uh, like, like Disney, for instance, which made a lot of their clothes over there and also Walmart, they started to, to have hard conversations about what was happening in there. But, um, and, and meanwhile, Bangladesh is as bad as it is. I mean, China itself has 40,000, uh, garment factories, according to her stats back some time ago. She was on fresh air, uh, with Terry Gross and talking about, you know, that, all of our thirsts, like you said, Danny, is, is really for cheap clothing. And the market has adjusted to not sell us things at a markup, but rather sells a lot of things at a low markup. And I'm, as I can, I would be the biggest hypocrite not to admit that, you know, when I stop in a, like a Ross or someplace like that, yeah, I gravitate towards that thing that's made as cheap without any consideration of where it's made or the ramifications for that country in which it is made. And Greenpeace talks about rivers in China running the particular color of the style you know, of, of that, of that time frame in which the companies that are buying the material want. And so this fast fashion that Jessica Klein labels it uh, has immense environmental ramifications that we don't really, really think about. And so the pushback and, and believe me, if there was a different one other than minimalism, <laughs> that is better, I'll jump on that train. But for now, it's the only pushback that has a cohesive philosophy that has marketing to back it up that, that I've seen. Like if somebody came to me and said, hey, here's a different thing, um, I'm on board. And, and I don't, to speak to why Josh and Ryan left it out of the film, environmental cause, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's a shame they did because I think you, 
you know, may, maybe they didn't want to follow, they plotted plenty of other tangents. Maybe they didn't want to follow <laughs> that one, you know, but yeah. It's, I think many uh, people mentioned it, but they didn't, um, it was never a part of what they, they said, like a lot of the academics mentioned it, but. Yeah, their motivation seemed to be like a personal one, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. For just With desire piece. pathways. I mean, that that's what, you know, when they build a college campus, let's say, you know, they, they wait to see where the, you know, where, where the the grasses wore down to put the, you know, so y- if you put alongside, you know, this idea that this is for your benefit, I mean, it's why preachers preach to felt need, right? This is going to benefit you, right? So you want it rather than, you know, here's your cod liver oil to fix what's wrong with you in society. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, yeah, I mean, they, they plan it upon uh, a desire pathway, which is I want to be fulfilled and yeah. that's one way to it. Yeah, I... Uh... Gosh, but that pathway, I've never heard that term, I think, before, but that kind of drives me crazy when I see um, sidewalks that are established and then I see, you know, tread marks in the <laughs> yeah. grass next to the sidewalks. And and what drives me crazy about it isn't that people have gone off the sidewalk, but they think they're being original. Like, you're just following a different <laughs> set path. That's not... <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's not really original. Yeah, <laughs> but that's a tangent of my own there, I guess. But um, um, but uh, the bigger uh, issue in in uh, here is about guilt, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> that you're getting at uh, the the minimalists. They don't. They are not there to make you feel guilty about things they're sort of trying to offer you a gift of some sort of freedom they're right? the joel olstein of they're the, yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. environmentalism yeah right yeah. yeah you have sort of the the they're not going to mention sin but they'll mention you know <laughs> here's yeah. how you get everything you want you've got pat robertson versus joel olstein here, right <laughs> yeah. um, and so yeah that's a good way to put it um but i, I what i love about um annie leonard um mm-hmm. and her work and those videos are really interesting um i have not read the book um kim was obsessed with this book over the last few months she's been just buried in it um um but i've watched the videos and they're very uh well made i think for one thing they're uh, they're not only informative but they're very um kind of entertaining she has these animations that go along with them and i actually uh captured some video here of uh one that is relevant here when you're talking about the environmental cost um she talks about the the process of extraction and how that is part of the process of you consuming things down the line. Can I set it up first? She talks about this, the whole system. The thing that I like about her is that she talks about kind of the whole system that we're living in, in terms of stuff. And she, in the book, you can't see this on the video, but in the book, she capitalizes stuff, which I think is, is great. But the, the system that she talks about or the process is first extraction, um, how we get the stuff out of the earth, production, distribution, consumption, and the dis- disposal. And um, Dan is going to share a clip from extraction. And she, But she, before I do that, she makes a point to say that that's a linear system, right? And we live in a finite space. And so a linear system can't work forever, right? Um, there has to be some sort of recycling, some sort of circular um, aspect to this. Um, but this is a really uh, damning, I think, description of the how extraction is essential to those cheap t-shirts you buy at Walmart. We'll start with extraction, which is a fancy word for natural resource exploitation, which is a fancy word for trashing the planet. What this looks like is we chop down the trees, we blow up mountains to get the metals inside, we use up all the water, and we wipe out the animals. So here, we are running up against our first limit. We are running out of resources. We are using too much stuff. Now, I know this can be hard to hear, but it's the truth, so we've got to deal with it. In the past three decades alone, one-third of the planet's natural resource base has been consumed. Gone. 
We are cutting and mining and hauling and trashing the place so fast that we're undermining the planet's very ability for people to live here. Where I live in the United States, we have less than 4% of our original forests left. 40% of the waterways have become undrinkable. And our problem is not just that we're using too much stuff, but we're using more than our share. We have 5% of the world's population, but we're using 30% of the world's resources and creating 30% of the world's waste. If everybody consumed at US rates, we would need three to five planets. And you know what? We've only got one. So my country's response to this limitation is simply to go take somebody else's. This is the third world, which some would say is another word for our stuff that somehow got on somebody else's land. So what does that look like? The same thing, trashing the place. 75% of global fisheries now are fished at or beyond capacity. 80% of the planet's original forests are gone. In the Amazon alone, we're losing 2,000 trees a minute. That is seven football fields a minute. And what about the people who live here? Well, according to these guys, they don't own these resources, even if they've been living there for generations. They don't own the means of production and they're not buying a lot of stuff. And in this system, if you don't own or buy a lot of stuff, you don't have value. Um, and that's a great way to put it, I think. The only value you have in the system is as somebody who is um, either providing the good or buying the good. Uh, that's the only human activity <laughs> that counts uh, in our in our system, and which leads to a, a lot of reasons why you know people buy too much stuff, right? And I want to talk, I guess, now about materialism, or excuse me, consumerism. Um, we've been talking about, I think, materialism. Uh, I don't know that we've used that term yet, but. Materialism, not as the collection of stuff and the valuing of stuff, but the approach, thinking of stuff uh, in its material and all of its material forms. Right. And so that's a really great material explanation for how raw materials are, are mined and, and extracted to create garbage uh, that, that we <laughs> somehow give us meaning. Right. Uh, and, and so I think that that's one thing I love about these videos that she's made, and, and I'm sure that, I, that it's part of the book as well, is that it tries to demystify these objects as not just something that appeared out of nowhere, right? But it gives it a context. It gives it uh, like a full history, uh, and it gives us something uh, to kind of bounce off of as we purchase things. Um, um, I want to talk about consumerism, though. Um, before we do that, though, um, I don't know if you guys realize uh, we got sponsors for the show. Uh, there's a contest going on uh, for the show. I want to take yeah. a quick break. I actually have two entries for our uh, advertisement concert. You know, we don't uh, do ads on the show. I don't think anyone would pay me to advertise on the show if I if they and if they would, I don't know that I would accept it. But uh, the uh, and we don't have a Patreon or anything like that, so we're going to make fun of that whole process. And we have uh, a couple of ads, and I don't know should I name the people or should I just. Uh, Name the ad. I think if I name the people who submit, it might uh, Deter, yeah. it might screw up the voting process a little bit. People will be playing favorites. Um, uh, two, I have two that I want to read at some point today, and they're both sort of related. Um, the first one is for the virtue signal. And I have I have some music to go with it. It's three fifteen, and your smartphone starts buzzing. Someone on the internet is wrong, and that calls for outrage. And outrage now. So what are you going to do? Rely on your own thumbs on that glass screen? 
not anymore. Now you can send a virtue signal. The new product from Mad Dog Industries. The virtue signal tweets, posts, hashtags, and reposts a strong sign to everyone in your social media uh, circles that you're mad as heck and you're not going to be silenced by the man. Set virtue signal to quick blast mode so that you don't have to worry about fear of missing out. Or turn it up to online warrior volume to repost carefully curated think pieces, captioned memes, and YouTube clips every hour. Now you can be the one who will devastate, decimate, obliterate whoever needs destroyed. Don't be the one who misses the petition, stays quiet in his privilege, or disappoints Jesus when you don't repost this image ever again. Get the virtue signal and let the internet know that you're the right kind of mad. Order now and Mad Dog Industries will also send the rapid online uh, image deployment machine and make sure your online profile matches or images show your roid rage whenever news breaks. That's the virtue signal from Mad Dog Industries. Order now. Excellent. All right. That's a good one. Uh, I'm on my phone ordering it. <laughs> uh, if you've listened to this show, uh, we, we talk about that sort of thing every now and then. And that's a really hilarious uh, encapsulation. I have another one to read. This is on a similar, a similar uh, vein, actually. We'll get to that one later. Uh, but this is a contest. If you're just now listening to the show for the first time, uh, we're going to I'm going to accept these submissions until August 15th. Uh, there's a little contest description on our website at Sectarian Review Podcast dot com uh, and it'll show you how to submit a submission and the top two vote getters uh, will receive a Josh Mozug original uh, sectarian review podcast coaster uh, and so uh, which are very nice and they're very nice and made of wood uh, and so they're not uh, yeah. created in some sweatshop somewhere so uh, you'll be, you'll proudly display it that and I <laughs> and I might even sign the back of it right so um, um, so we'll get to another one of those in a little bit uh, so let's get back to this topic here consumerism um, this the movie itself um, I think has a really complicated relationship with consumerism um, I don't know if I want to spring something on you what do you guys think about when I say consumerism, sort of what stands out to you as significant or important about that? Uh, to me, the the root word it makes me think of the the root word of you know consuming food. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it has a very different take today. I think that consumerism um, is about buying things and and buying things to make yourself happy, which is very different than the happiness that we talked about with minimalism, hoping to create earlier in the show yeah i can't really add to that that's perfect yeah i mean i wish i could have said it that well that yeah that's what it is to me too yeah it's, it's not buying something for use or need um it's buying something to um fill some sort of void right yeah um and i think it's really interesting i mean when you hear these sort of utopian descriptions of how markets work right it's always supply and demand and right that um but what's left out in those uh, descriptions of how markets work is the way demand is manufactured, right? I mean, people don't just naturally desire um, fidget spinners or something like that, yeah. right? <laughs> there's some, there's something, uh, there's a, a process, it, there's yeah. something instigating it. There's a process going into uh, the the creation of demand for something like that. Um, and to me, that's what's kind of pernicious uh, about consumerism is that it isn't natural, right? It, it is, is something that is. Uh, organized and manufactured. Um, I want to say, I, I don't know if you guys have much to add to this. Just jump in anytime you like. Um, 
there's a, a great film uh, by a uh, filmmaker whose name is escaping me, of course, as it always does as I'm uh, recording live. Uh, but it's called um, uh, Century of the Self. Okay, and uh, and it's a four. It's like four hours long. It's in four different four four one hour parts. It's a British documentary. Uh, Curtis uh, something Curtis uh, is his last name, and um, he uh, basically talks about the way that Freudian ideas of human psychology were used by Freud's own nephew, a guy named um, uh, Edward Bernays, to uh, create, to adapt ideas for propaganda and create public relations and advertising. And so um, using these kind of base instinctive uh, features of human psychology about desire and sex and death and all that sort of thing, Going to intro to psychology class, you'll hear all about Freud. Um, they're using that to create needs in people, right? And this is a long-term process um, uh, that's been going on since World War II, uh, and, and it, it's I think reached a point in American like society that it's just part of our fabric. We don't even notice it anymore. Yeah. I I was actually looking for the, the filmmaker, but the I do uh, certainly agree. And the point of advertising is needs creation. I mean, there are businesses that need supported. Uh, interestingly, to sort of pitch this l- locally, I, you hear a lot of folks, at least I do, and maybe Kim, you could rebut this or, or affirm it, that that say, "I want things made in America again." That that's what we need to get back to is making things in America versus somewhere else. And what I've said for a long time, I, I don't know if folks are ready for the cost. of of that and what it'll mean in sort of our our present sort of dynamic, which is quantity over quality. For as an example, if like this shirt that you pointed out earlier, you know, I think I got it for seven ninety nine at Kohl's as part of a three shirt deal, three shirts for whatever twenty one dollars and, and change. I'm not a math guy, but um, but if I went to say I don't know how long it's the last, but there's a company, American company, Buck Mason, they make these sort of rug with a name like Buck Mason. Of course, it's a rugged, like if I was half a man, I would have a shirt from Buck Mason, but one t-shirt is $30, one t-shirt. In our present context, if I told someone I paid $30 for this shirt, they would, they would have me committed. Like we want the cheap things, but yet at the same time, we want to say, you know, I, I want stuff made in America. Are we ready to, to do what that means and, you know, have an ethical, uh, you know, approach to the accumulation of the garment, uh, you know, uh, the entities that make up the garment uh, and, and every facet along the way? Are we willing to do that? And my condition is we're not in, in the present paradigm of buying like you're talking about consumerism. That totally is a is a 180 to, to buy fewer things like, say, my 40 or 33 uh, most people, they're repulsed by that idea and they think it's a stunt. And it is in a way, but they list some, some key people that, that do that. I say they, uh, Courtney on her uh, uh, blog about Project 333, they list some pretty uh, accomplished people that, that do that. Um, and, and so what would that mean? Well, it would mean that I would own a shirt that would probably last 10 years. And you could make the case, well, this will last 10 years. But you know, as a semi-public figure, I, I don't know that I want to be seen in this shirt in 10 years. <laughs> Maybe I should want it and not have a problem with that. But my ego is too fragile to do that. Well, and it might if you owned 100 shirts and you wore it less often. It yeah. 
one of the arguments, but yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's fine. Yeah, and and so to to get to that hundred though, and uh, is it that you know they they're priced at a price point that Absolutely. I could afford that, and so they're made in 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 a in a developing country or or China or wherever, and shipped, and the environmental spiral up of all of that is uh, is very cost uh, costly to us, and and not even just to us to to them. Like you had mentioned earlier, uh, Danny, about how Apple uh, charges a lot or 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 you know makes anyway. The point I wanted to make there was they they make stuff as cheaply as they can. Like like Kim had pointed out in the statistics you mentioned, you know they make stuff as cheaply as they can, whether it's a cell phone battery or or anything else along the along the sort of stream of making it, and then they charge an exorbitant amount that people buy. They would buy fewer Macs, I guess, you know, than, than they would like a PC. Like their argument always is, well, this is going to last you, you know, ten years and or whatever. But I'm not sure where I, where I need to land on that. But I think our present our present dynamic is is quantity, and that's that's how most of the garment companies are making their money. Most of just about anything is making making its money. It seems in, in American culture versus quality. Yeah. And to to jump off of that, I taught global business in the fall and um, kind of I had um, I did an exercise where I talked about cars and there was a there was a um, Economist magazine has a, um, a ranking of the most American cars and it's supposed to be a top 10 list, but only seven were on the list. And that surprised my students. And they were kind of shocked because, you know, they wanted cars to be made in America. And and I had one student who kept pushing back at me saying, I want everything to be made in America. And I said to him, I challenge you to leave here today and go home and look at your clothes, every garment of clothing down to your socks and tell me how much of it was made in America. And he came in sheepishly the next class and I asked him how much was made here and he said none of it. And I said, you know, what sacrifices are you willing to make so that you can have clothes that are and things that are made here? And and nor was it the truck that he drove to class was made in America either and he was surprised by that. Um, and, and, you know, I think we're not willing to make those sacrifices, first of all. But second of all, um, soon after that, Walmart came out with a... Um, an advertising campaign where they're like, hey, we're starting to make things in America and we're investing, I forget, it's like $350 million. I mean, a lot of money. They're investing a lot of money in things made in America. But then when I started to look into it, handing articles out to my class, um, the the truth of the matter is that a lot of the things that used to be made at Walmart or, or sold at Walmart were made in China. And the cost of living in China is starting to rise. And so it's no longer necessarily cost effective to continue to have things made in China. And so it's starting to be cost effective. And now they're just using it as a marketing campaign to have things made here. But there are, from a supply chain perspective, um, difficulties with that, because um, in the article, and I wish I'd thought to to share this um, article and, and be able to cite it. But in the article, they talked about how there are only two companies in the United States that make paintbrushes anymore um, that like you would paint your wall with in, in the United States. And one of them was Worcester Brush and Walmart wanted to be able to have, um, and I know that because we had a friend who worked there, um, and Walmart wanted to be able to have ones that had wood handles and neither of the companies makes brushes with wood handles. And so then the companies are in trying to get the Walmart bid, which is really hard to get your product at Walmart, you have to like stoop to all kinds of levels to get your product at Walmart. Um, they then needed to find a company that 
could supply them the wooden handle. And so it's simple to say, we want to go back to having our things made in America. And, and I want to be able to buy my paintbrush that says it's made in America, but, and to be able to buy it at Walmart because it's cheap. But, you know, there's a lot of implications with that, that it's not, we can just snap our fingers and make it happen. And then when you stop and think about, you know, the, a lot of people are talking about trying to close factories and, and have cars made here. You think about, um, you know, in Mexico or China or wherever they're making our cars. Now we're taking jobs away from people that, albeit they might have not made as much money as they did here and we're exploiting labor and things like that. But now what are those people going to do for, for a living now? And so I think, you know, there are a lot of things that we don't think about when we when we say those kinds of things. And I think we're not willing to make those sacrifices. And it requires the the kind of true materialist um, understanding of, of an object, right? Not mm-hmm. materialism as as consumption, but materialism as this form of, of like deep engagement with our objects, uh, with, the, with the things that we buy. Um, and it's actually, it's, uh, you, you talked about, um, uh, uh, Kondo, what was her name? Marie. Uh, oh, Marie. Marie, yeah. yeah. Marie Kondo. There's a, a New York article, a New York Times article, it's a very long article. I'll put the link uh, up to it on the uh, on the website. And there's actually, I'll put a bunch of these links that I've been trying to jot them down. Uh, the Dan Harris uh, project and, and Century of the Self by Adam Curtis. Uh, I found, okay, I finally thanks. figured yeah. it out. Uh, and I'll put links up to that stuff uh, as well as this. But uh, Marie Kondo uh, has this sort of get rid of stuff you don't need to buy more objects in order to organize right Uh, which puts her kind of at odds this article does a really interesting way of uh uh, narrating the fact that uh she's kind of at odds with this organization called napo n-a-p-o which is i believe the national association of professional organizers uh and so they don't like her i think uh, a lot of people within that organization um and there's a quote in here that really stood out to me. Conference, which is the NAPO event, uh, conference was different from the Con Marie, which is Marie Kondo's um, organization, from the Con Marie events that I attended. Whereas uh, Kondo does not believe that you need to buy anything in order to organize and that storage systems provide only the illusion of tidiness. The women of conference uh uh, sell time-saving apps, label makers, the best kind of Sharpie, the best tool. Uh, and, and it goes on. And I thought that was a really interesting um, illustration of the fact that even minimalism, as you were saying at the beginning, uh, Kim, can be converted <laughs> into another kind of consumerism, right? Yeah. So even to minimize your, uh, your, your subject or your life, your objects in your uh, house, it requires you buying more stuff that they're happy to provide you this, this NAPO uh, yeah. conference. And so, yeah, I think one of the susceptible one of the things we're susceptible to with minimalism is when we, we start talking about stuff so much, you know, getting rid of stuff, then stuff becomes the only thing we talk about. And you're basically trading one sort of animal for another, um, to that end, I think the container store and if, if yeah. major cities have these, yeah. yeah, in 78, they started with one store. They now have 80. It's a publicly traded company. And I think the, the arena of stuffism, their answer to everything is just organize it more. And we sort of throw our chest out when our stuff is better organized, when I would say Marie would advocate uh, and uh, getting rid of stuff so you don't even need the storage. For instance, the store, the public storage, uh, you know, uh, entity or business or whatever it, it is huge now, whereas before, you know, it 
it was non-existent when I was growing up. I don't remember anybody ever renting a locker. Maybe they rented some space to store a boat. But uh, these days, it's there's no limit to stuffism. It's only how much space do you have or can you rent yeah. and how much debt can you go into to acquire it. That That's the only guardrails. And so imposing any guardrail like minimalism to say, let's be not be compulsory about it. And they all have their mantras. I think Josh and uh, I wrote down a couple of uh, like they have their thing like uh, it's not spark joy with them. It's whatever has a function or, or gives you joy. Joy, like yeah. you love books, like I could absolutely thin my herd and and uh, and then thin my herd after that. But the the, the fact is, I, I like having those. And and they would say, keep your books. You know, this isn't some uh, ascetic lifestyle that that only two or three people can follow. But when you want clicks or you want views on a Netflix, it's not here's here's eight reasonable people who did good things. That's not gonna. No one's ever gonna watch that film. Ever, but if they have some knucklehead who has 100 things or 50 things in two backpacks, you're ever going to watch that because it's spectacle, you know. And, and here's a tiny house. Here's one percent of all people who own a home. They own this house. It's 400 400 square feet. That's going to make somebody click and say, you know, and all the comments that follow and all the shareability and all those algorithms, the algorithms that get something popular. But at least it's an entry into having a conversation that that's not happening either in church or anywhere else. But, I know. One of the thing, one of the things that bothers me about the whole movement, um, is that it, it assumes, and I think sometimes, unfortunately, it this becomes a cycle. Is it assumes that you're getting rid of the stuff, um, and and if if that happens one time, that's fine. But I think what happens with a lot of people is you get rid of the stuff, you minimize. You feel good about it for a while and then you continue to go shopping and you continue to accumulate and then you just keep getting rid of the stuff Spring and cleaning yeah and and there's this there's That's our this, giveaway at church yeah. right yeah there's this cycle of of um you know continuing to buy declutter. and continue, continuing to declutter and and yeah rob is referring to our church has a, a giveaway at the beginning of the school year where everybody brings their clothes and and um and and then you know people from the community can come and get clothes at the beginning of the school year, which is which is great. Um, but when you when you see, I mean, the fact that it can happen is a problem. You know what I mean? Is yeah. it a cop out? I mean, is it just giving yeah. us a way to feel less guilty about having bought all that crap? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. and and I mean, even throughout the film, um, I call them the dudes, Josh and Ryan. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> one of them, and I and, and it's during a video time. Um, says, um, I, I can't find the exact quote in my notes, but he says, I wish I could say that putting all my stuff in a dumpster felt good, but it, I have to say that it was more of a process. And, um, you know, a lot of times people are throwing it away. It ends up in a garbage dump. Or a lot of times they take it to Salvation Army and where where there's just so much stuff there as well. And sometimes those places can't keep it all and they end up getting rid of it or, or, you know, it ends up in an incinerator and things like that. And so, um, you know, this cycle of, you know, if you can do it once and, and be done with it, I think that's fine. But this cycle of constantly buying and then getting rid of, I think, is something that if we can all just have 40 quality outfits or, or whatever the case might be and get to a place where we're we have a balance i think i think it's about balance finding whatever your balance is yeah and and figuring that out and and you're going to have some clothes that you get sick of or they wear out or you grow out of or you you know you eat too much or too little or whatever the case might be um and you want to pass them on and i think that's fine but i think if it's a, a cycle that is happening in your life continuously then i think it's a, a problem that you need to think about 
That's a great point. And I also like if we had 50,000 more dollars to spend on a house, say, or we maybe could have. But, you know, if we had decided to spend 50,000 more dollars on a house, we could have got a house bigger uh, so that we wouldn't have even noticed the amount of stuff we have. It would just fit more nicely in there. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I feel like there's also I mean, there's a class issue that I think we should get to uh, at some point. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I do think that. It's hard to be honest with yourself about your accumulation of, of stuff, right? Well, and one of the things is we've moved many times, and that makes yeah. it really easy to get rid of stuff. And a lot of people don't necessarily do that. And then it's in your attic or your basement somewhere, and, and you're not aware of it. Um, which reminds me of an article um, by Lloyd Alter, which is called Nobody Wants Your Parents' Stuff. And um, <laughs> But it doesn't even talk about the dishes like that everybody sort of holds on as heirlooms, thinking people are going to want this fine dining for the one time in 10 years you use it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that he talks about, too, is that um, you know, up until, you know, in the last 50 or 100 years, things were mass produced. And so um, my mom's china, for example, probably falls into that category. Whereas, um, you know, my great grandmother's china, if it had existed, would have been something that would have been, you know, maybe made in China. And in that time, it would have been a good thing, right? Um, you know, it would have been delicate and had flowers and, and that kind of thing. Nothing against my mom's china. But, um, but he's kind of making the point that right now there are two generations. You've got the 80 and 90 year olds who are either going into nursing homes or dying off and their stuff is being tried to be in hand down. And then you also have, you know, like maybe our parents generation and 50 and 60 year olds who are um, saying, well, maybe I want to move into a tiny home or I want to move downsize or I want to retire. And they're trying to get rid of stuff, too. And our generation has already accumulated all the stuff that we want. And we have our own style and millennials, too. And so we've got two generations of people that are trying to get rid of things. And it's all ending up in, um, you know, Salvation Army or maybe they're keeping it M&M up the street. There's um. a, a junk store up the street. When you walk in that Don't place. Bad mouth my wife's favorite store. It's, <laughs> <laughs> when you walk in, this, it's like a, a, a junk store. I don't know how else to say it. It's a giant ever ongoing garage sale. That, yeah. And you walk in that place and it's like where they held the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Indiana Jones. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's unbelievable. You didn't even see the back room. I didn't see the, the back secret room. back room. The, to, this, to this point, you know, Josh's class, the clutter-free thing, that is, there, was a, there was a week designated to talking about going going forward clutter-free, which is a huge component to all of this. If it's just this binge purge thing, we're exacerbating the problem, probably more so because we're, 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 you know, we're, we're, we're stuffing a bunch of stuff into the pipeline of disposal, you know, which is, which is not, which is certainly not a good thing. So how do you go forward? And it, it, it I think it takes, um, uh, like Kondo recommends a real life overhaul. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to like take a hard look about what you're keeping, how you're even accumulating it. Like, is this some psychological? And, and to be honest, I mean, if you look at a show like Hoarders, which is the only, to me, the only warning sign on the stuffism blinker, you know, that, that like people have. Well, if I don't, as long as I don't end up on Hoarders, I'm fine. <laughs> I mean, they, they certainly have gone off the rails, but I mean, I think yeah. you can you can start some, some uh, space uh, before that, before you could say, I, I could uh, deal with this, got to deal with this. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I so I, this is actually a good segue. I, I feel the obligation to be a little critical of the of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and I guess the movement maybe, uh, or at least ask critical questions about it. Um, and I guess Kim brought this up right at the beginning. Uh, the idea of is this really some is this really an antidote to consumerism, or is it 
just an evolution of consumerism. And I guess uh, we have to get to the motivation. Like, what is this? Um, what kind of? And I guess maybe this is a segue into our discussion about spirituality. Um, uh, like, what hole is minimalism filling that? A, the accumulation used to be filling right and so when i watch these guys i wonder and i'm not accusing yeah. them i have to say uh, uh another guy that was on the show michael redding he was on the uh the transhumanism episode that we did he actually um uh, when i posted if anybody wants any questions about this he posted hey those guys stayed at my house oh, <laughs> so wow, they crashed yeah. with him in nashville apparently yeah. uh so i don't want to disparage them or, or, or cast any aspersions on them but um i do wonder if they've replaced this need for meaning through stuff and visible status with this need for uh, for affirmation and to be in front of an audience and being cheered and having hugs all the time from everybody that they meet. Uh, and so I wonder if this is really any less consumerist. Um, it just doesn't look like it according to our maybe limited definition of that term. Hmm. I, I don't know if you guys, what you think about that. I, I think it depends on the application. I think I, and, and maybe theirs is, I don't know. We only have, you know, less than an hour or something of, of their life to look at. Um, I think it depends on how you approach it and why you're doing it. Um, and I think it, just like anything, it depends on the person. You know, when I thought about the project three through three, I thought of a, and maybe you guys could think of it, a, a teacher I had, because, you know, teachers you see, you know, for, you know, the balance of school year or whatever, a guy named, he was a geometry teacher named Mr. Wilkin, and I bet he had less than 33 items in his wardrobe. It wasn't that he didn't have money to, to, to do this. It was just a personal choice that he had. Um, he, he wasn't in line for any award. You know, he wasn't going to get some humanitarian sort of applause. Dr. Kim at, uh, at the college I went to, he probably had 10 things at a cardigan, you know, t-shirt. And again, it's like th these guys don't get awards. So why is it that it, it is certainly as a class thing? I think this is, this is certainly an upper class or I would say middle to upper class, you know, plight, mm -hmm. I guess. I mean, some of these people, uh, you know, the only reason they're considering this is because they've been over consumers. So, but it, I, I guess my only pushback to the pushback is do do we then say well then go on and you're you're ignorant you know I mean her, you know keep keep you know feeding into a system or yeah and they, it is a little and uh, it's they're like the monks I guess I, I don't see I don't see like anybody graduating to doing the owning forty things or fifty things like the one guy does or um, you know some of the really dramatic things that they do but these are the people that have journeyed to the edge and they're back giving us a message that I think we take as Kim is saying I think they take bits and pieces of and saying what can I implement uh, you know for my own spirituality or I guess well-being uh, I guess I'm not I'm not totally opposed to the idea of it being part of our spiritual disciplines to uh, it's a unique I think American culture uh, spiritual discipline I don't know this problem in, in in the undeveloped world but in ours uh, Jesus says a whole lot about possessions uh, are, are we to ignore all of that and say, well, I live in a context where I don't have to pay attention to that. And there are folks who are minimals, minim, minimalists, yeah, uh, for the benefit, uh, right, for the benefit. Millennial minimalists. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> they, they do it for the sake of being able to be uh, having some measure of philanthropy. You know, they, they, they call yeah. merciful minimalists. Yeah. There, there's actually a blog, the merciful minimalists. And so this person, actually, it's a lady that I got to know on the Uncluttered class. She says, you know, her whole take on this is to consume less so she can give more. Mm 
This um, is the concept of Lazarus at the gate. That's okay. why this this fits really well oh, yeah, with yeah. that with that show. Yeah, that's exactly like what their philosophy is as well. Um, yeah, I, I guess I I like if it were my mom that had decided to do this, you'd be uh, all for it. No. I would be all for it, right? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't see it as a form of. It's almost like conspicuous unconsumption or whatever, (laughs) conspicuous abstinence, let's call it. Um, And so I, I, there's, I feel like there's conspicuous consumption is towards displaying status. I mean, that's that's the end of conspicuous consumption. You buy things in order to show that I can afford the Mercedes, right, or whatever it is that I'm driving. Um, I still have my '95 Honda. um, So yeah. you're a conspicuous on consumer though. Yeah. By That's me it. knocking on wood. Well, I, I had to jump it yesterday, but yeah, let's, yeah. Um, I'll assume it'll start today. Um, but the, uh, but um, I feel like to, there are people and of a certain class and maybe this is just me being whatever class envy or whatever again. Um, but uh, th- there are people who I think are privileged enough to do this sort of thing with these kind of dramatic stories. Well, I had a six figure income and I gave it all up because yeah. I wanted to travel the world and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and I feel like that is, I mean, it's not causing the environmental right. impact, I suppose. Um, but I don't know that on a, a personal spiritual level, it's any more noble, right? Uh, like I, 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 if they didn't have a brand that came out of it, would they do it? Yeah, Maybe. exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you couldn't start your blog or whatever, uh, yeah, or travel the country speaking and selling a book and so yeah. forth. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying that about these two guys in particular. I, I'm just sort of making a, a, uh, a, a broad brush, uh, stroke, uh, uh, painting of, uh, of a certain class. So go ahead. Um, there's just so much, so many things. That, yeah. Um, so I guess to go along with that last, the class question, um, there's, there's the guy in the video that I think he's got like a man bun or something. And he, <laughs> he talks about how he had chosen his career based on like how much education, Leon, yeah. okay. How yeah. much education you can have and, um, and how much money you're going to make. And he, works in the financial sector and then he finally achieves what he wanted to achieve. And then, and and then he says, um, you know, I realized that I could never walk away from that much money. And he, and he says, I realized my life could never have purpose and meaning. And he talks about, um, he knew, he, um, I'm trying to find my notes here. Um, he knew his life would be scripted for him and he would have no chance for adventure. Um, and the, and the, Josh and uh, Ryan um, also kind of have the same like come to Jesus story, right? Where they they had had this this wealth and, and stuff like that. And I guess a fundamental question that I have, having worked in corporate America, um, is can you be successful in that environment or as a checkout guy at Walmart or as the telemarketer? in for a corporation because i mean that's our reality right now is a lot of people work in this kind of job can you work in a job like that where you're a cog in the machine so to speak and have purpose and meaning and i think that like the fundamental assumption of the film is that no you can't and that like they walked away from it and they're like celebrating that they did and and 
I believe in corporate social responsibility. And I wonder if the guy with the man bun had, instead of walking away, um, sorry, um, instead of walking away, if his come to Jesus moment had been, I'd like to make a difference here um, instead of, I don't know what his life is now, but instead of, you know, living in a coffee shop and being a hippie or whatever it is, and I'm a hippie in my own way, um, if instead of walking away, if he had said, I want to make a difference in this world, and he could be a part of changing, or maybe not in the financial sector, but maybe he goes over to work for Walmart and he helps them be more environmentally responsible and bring business back to America or whatever it is that he felt passionate for, can you have purpose and meaning in those types of roles and and still make a ton of money and 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 still have adventure? Um, a, and then if you want to bring it back to a completely like Jesus perspective, um, I worked with a man that um, I, I give this example all the time. His name was Tim Carter. He was very successful in National City and then PNC and, and has moved on to another role. But, I mean, he was a Christian, and you knew that almost from the day that you met him, but he was very successful. He was the nicest guy you ever worked for. And one day I went into his office to make a phone call, and sitting on his desk was a Bible. And he climbed the corporate ladder, but he met Jesus every day in his office. And um, so... You know, I know the film minimalism isn't about that, but but you know, where can we find purpose and meaning in in whatever role that we play in our lives? I think that we need to figure out how to do that and not just walk away when it gets difficult. And and not I know again, I know nothing about this guy's life, but yeah. I just I found that story interesting. I, I but I, what you're saying is exactly right, <laughs> I think. Um I think that at its heart in this as it's presented in this film. I now maybe Josh Becker has a, I mean, he's incorporated it more with mainstream Christianity, sort of like Orthodox Christianity, right? Um, in this film, there's like a, a secular religion uh, that's been built around this, right? And it seems to me that it is a spiritual problem they're trying to fill. And had they filled that with, you know, an ex spiritual solution within the system, as you're saying, I think they might have. Uh, been able to keep the job right uh, and, and still felt that kind of that sense of purpose and mission um, and, and I think that w- the real that observation or that thought um, really stood out to me when I saw Sam Harris show up uh, as, a, as an expert witness in this uh, in this mm-hmm. documentary because I mean he's a very famous new atheist right um, detestable human being and um, yeah and uh, and uh, not because he's an atheist but <laughs> just because he's who he is uh, but uh, uh, but the uh, uh, but that he, what he's doing is trying to give you like a neurological religion, right? Uh, something that's purely biofeedback and, 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 yeah. and, un, and completely material, right? Uh, right. And, and there's no sort of – there's no immaterial um, allotment made for in, in his world, right? And so that's how he – and I suspect other people are using minimalism, right? And, I, and in, if that is the case, I don't think it's a solution to the problem that they're seeking. I mean, just as a person of faith, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And this is where you guys both asked me why I wrote Kafka's A Little Fable down. Uh, I'll read it really quickly here. Uh, it's very short. Um, it's a, just a, a, a paragraph-long story. Alas, said the mouse, the whole world is growing smaller every day. At the beginning, it was so big that I was afraid. I kept running and running, and I was glad when I saw walls far away to the right and left. But these long walls have narrowed so quickly that I am in the last chamber already, and there in the corner stands the trap that I am running into. 
you only need to change your direction said the cat and ate it up right and so like to me <laughs> i love that little parable it's funny uh it's kafka and it's kafka-esque humor um but the only way to avoid the end or death in this case is to go into death right there there's this sort of um inescapable loop that this mouse is is, is caught up in and i kind of feel like I would love to see the minimalists 15 years from now uh, and see if they're still having these sort of existential crisis uh, mm. that, that led them to get rid of everything and pursue another kind of um, replacement for maybe an authentic, I hate using that term, as you know, from last <laughs> week, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, spirituality. But yeah, um, I, I, I agree with Kim. That was a long way of saying I agree <laughs> with Kim. Um do you get a lot of this in your marriage? He has a long way to agree with you. No comment. And sometimes I'm like, was that a yes or a no? <laughs> Maybe start with yes, and then here's the longer. You know. um, Rob, I, I, I am not meaning to trash on the film. I'm just trying no, to throw, no, yeah. uh, throw I, out. And I don't want to be non-critical. I think there's plenty of things. It's interesting, as you said, and I don't think I, 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 I'm still like perplexed as to why they included Dan Harris yeah. uh, with his meditation, ten percent. But be, and and I'm in, I'm noticing a parallel now, at least whether they realize it or not. Dan Harris has taken the idea of meditation and divorced it from Buddhism, mm-hmm. and and so he's made this ten uh, percent happier in the meditation sort of machine as, and he has an app for it and everything and he's made it like sans religion uh so it's usable by a ceo or by a soldier or athlete or whatever and it's just about being present and aware and stuff like that but it it has become a religion you know and that in that way and a product yeah absolutely yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and and i get i when i think about josh and uh, ryan future like projecting forward uh I see a tough row to hoe. Like, for instance, I mean, what what do you do after you sort of jump the shark, for lack of a better word? You sort of done this grand standing type thing. Uh, what does the career look like after that? And with uh, AJ, which uh, you know, and I, I certainly second all of Kim's uh, questions about that. You know, for him to remove himself uh, f- from everything is uh, is to me, you know, probably undoing. Uh, a lot of what he does, but you know, he started this uh, side sort of brand about around the idea of misfit, misfit.com, misfit, and all this stuff. And you know, he's he's hawking wares, you know, and uh, um, I don't know, I, I, I guess I don't see it again. I would jump on the next train going the a, a different direction yeah. if I saw there, there being a coordinated conversation uh, about it. And and I think g- gathered around the topic of minim- minimalism, I think you find shared for different reasons, shared objective, you know, like let's not be consumers, let's be environmentalists, let's, you know, that all along the way. And, and it's fun to be in that, in that place because the counter opinion is everywhere. I mean, it, it, yeah. there, it goes almost unchecked uh, yeah. in our society to accumulate. You know? Well, and that's the thing. And even within the church, maybe even more so in the church and in, in many cases that, yeah, the idea of buying as just yeah. a natural way of being is uh, I mean, because you're bored or you're upset about something, you know, or whatever. Um, but yeah. Well, and it's almost considered un-American yeah. to not. Well, that's want Bush, to... right? That, that's yeah. The Bush thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I, so in, let me make a, a, bro, a bold statement. Um, maybe, maybe it's boring even. I don't, maybe it's not bold. <laughs> maybe it's just not interesting. Um, so in the way that they are kind of, rejecting religion but creating religion um i also feel like they have identified a problem with capitalism okay the minimalist 
philosophy as I didn't. And, and I think um, the story of stuff, I mean, that's pretty basic Marxism right there. I mean, what she's, what she's doing. Um, and so the minimalists have identified a problem with capitalism and they replace it with more capitalism, right? That, that just is uh, uh, a, a little uh, maybe not overtly, yeah. disruptive to their life. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see the financials. I mean, are are they making their money on a speaking tour, which by, you know, by every estimate I would have is not really creating a product mm-hmm. um, or they make it on the book sales, which, you know, it, it, they could do an ebook. And but I, I mean, I, you know what I mean? Like if, if the product that they're making is not, is not object based, well, maybe I mean, they have lent or the, the sales film. of the book. Right. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I'm sure the speaking tour was basically about that, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's I, to market the book. I mean, that's why you do a book tour. So right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why they were at the South by Southwest and, and all of that. Yeah. And I wonder what the how what you get by being the subject of a documentary. Yeah, I wonder if they made any, yeah. yeah. A really well-made documentary, by the way, and it's well worth your time. Uh, uh, I, I and. 85% in agreement with them, right? About, yeah. about all the, I just feel like they haven't investigated necessarily the motivation, the underlying structures of this, of this philosophy, um, in the way that I would hope they would have. Um, um, I want to go back one second before we move forward, um, to the end, uh, back into the cat's mouth here. Um, okay. Um, the, uh, the guy who quit his job because he, wanted to have event, an adventurous life or whatever. Was that the man bun guy? Meaning, purpose and meaning. Yeah. Um, is that not like class privilege? I mean, to be able to pursue adventure in life instead of just substance. I mean, that that in itself is like, to me, a signifier uh, of, of extreme privilege, right? And when you watch this film, the fashions and the, I mean, they're very Brooklyn. I mean, everybody looks like they're right out of Brooklyn. I mean, this is very much... Uh, an elite kind of crowd that we see presented in the film, at least. Um, and also, I wanted to, like, when I, my notes, I have to talk about this, the tiny house thing, which we, we briefly mentioned at the beginning. Um, we've got tiny houses that people can live in. They've been there for years. They're called trailer parks, right? Um, and they don't want to live in trailer parks because it, they're lacking the conspicuous consumption, right? Yeah. So even though the tiny house may be tiny or whatever, it's still... Uh, signifies a status that they've achieved, right? Uh, because it's still beautiful and it's on HGV, HGTV and stuff, right? Um, which also reminds me, Jason Isbell had a great tweet once. I was, I've been watching this tiny house hunters and I don't get it. Everybody's regular sized. <laughs> so, yeah. I love Jason Isbell. Uh, you should follow him on Twitter if you don't, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, so I feel like the tiny house movement is in itself kind of problematic in its in its motivation for me. I mean, I think that there's definitely a place for it and I, I'm not against going for style or whatever, but to pretend like this is how I can live cheaply. I mean, you could buy a trailer for $20,000 and live in the trailer park um, very cheaply if that's what you want. Um, well, and another thing is that it assumes that the new thing is better. Yeah. Um, oh, the, yeah. The, the developers that we're talking about, the thing that would be great is if people start replicating these houses. And it's like there are small houses. Maybe they're not 460 square feet, but there are small houses that are perfectly good. And maybe you just have to put a coat of paint on them. Um, and, and like that, you said last night, if everybody left their 1200 
square foot house for the 400 square foot house. Now you're going to have all these empty 1200 square foot houses, which are perfectly good. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And to a lot of people, a 1200 square foot house is small. And so there are perf- perfectly good. There are a lot of perfectly good houses out there. Maybe it just depends on where you want to live, but there are perfectly good small houses out there. Um, the tiny house movement, I think, assumes that we need to throw away the old and, and buy something new. And, and to me, that assumes um it's kind of the whole same cycle again yeah and i think some of these folks they're they're kind of cheating a little bit because like what you're talking about they're they're not creating the idea that what has been is not good enough and you need something new that is a desire pathway i mean just about everybody finds himself in that groove i do you know i mean with with, we were talking about the phones or whatever before so that's already there and so if they could channel like invent, like undoing that cultural norm of not wanting the new next thing is probably beyond Ryan and Josh's ability. <laughs> but if they said, you know, and I don't think they're even behind the tiny house. So they said, what's a way to get people into a minimization mode that's new? You know, what what could you do besides uh, the tiny housing? I mean, I don't have the privilege of, of looking down my nose at people lived in live in trailers. I, you know, I grew up six years of my life living in a trailer. Mm-hmm. So, um that there isn't that for me, but the the idea that uh, that because I want smaller, I have to sacrifice style and and desirability because I don't think anybody that I ever knew living in a trailer park, whatever, would say this is a desired aesthetic. You know that I have to sacrifice all of that to have anything because we are talking about a class. These are people that worked at Verizon. These are people that worked at you know, AJ Leon or worked in Wall Street and so forth. They have money, so. Like the, I think Massio, the architect you're talking about, what is better uh, than living in the smallest place you can live in if, to heat it, to light it, to, to do all the other things about it? Because a lot of these people in their 20s are building houses, uh, you know, anyway. Yeah. You're not creating that desire pathway. You're simply putting an answer in that established desire pathway that is that is compatible with minimalism. Um, and and I, I don't see the benefit of demonizing them for that because unless you can undo that desire pathway and make people not want new stuff or not want stylish stuff, right. I'm not going to do that. Certainly not for a 20 year old from Brooklyn, but if, if they, if they don't go out and buy a place, you know, out in the suburbs for, you know, 600, $800,000, that's colossal and belongs on McMansion hell, that blog, if you've ever seen <laughs> that, which is hilarious, yeah. if it doesn't belong on there that has a cavernous entryway that's pointless, a dining room that doesn't make any sense and all these other issues. If, if, if I want to, if, if I, first of all, I think it's, it's, it's cartoonish that we imagine that these, there's people pulling the strings on all this stuff. I mean, if, if I, but I wanted to get those people in that vein, uh, it's easier to plant something there on a path they're already on, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and uh, there were like two people that talked about tiny homes in the film, or at least. And the, the one guy said, um, and I, I'm sorry that I wasn't good at getting everybody's name, but um, the one guy said, tiny homes are um, a solution to affordability, simplicity, and sustainability that has not been solved yet. And I think that... Um, it is a noble solution. And I think that sometimes we're critical of it. Um, Dan and I have had gone back and forth on this. Um, I'm a lot more sympathetic to them than he is because I think a lot of people come from, we've lived in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Georgia in remote areas where houses are not expensive, but in a lot of places, your alternative is a $1 million home and maybe they're paying it what seems to me exorbitant amount of money. They're paying $200,000 for this tiny home, but that's a lot that's a lot cheaper than what their alternative is. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
Um, and maybe there aren't trailer parks there. Um, and then another guy said, um, it allows people to buy a house outright versus on credit. And to me, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the articles, I think on house hunters, they're not showing the, the average tiny home buyer. Um, I've read a lot of articles and blogs about people who will buy one because they talk about, I have so much student debt and blah, blah, blah. And we sold our old house. We had $50,000 and we, we took a trailer. A lot of times they'll take like a trailer and build something on top of it. And so I think there is a lot of, um, there is like a nobleness to a lot of people who do it. They're trying to, to do it to solve a financial problem that they have. And, um, it's not always the, the person that wants the granite countertops, but they just want a smaller house. Mm. So it's tough to get good numbers. I mean, I tried when I saw this was going to intersect with our conversation to get good numbers on tiny house because they don't have the same building permits and things like that. And so, um, but like what you're saying, most of the people, what is it? Uh, they say 68% of the folks don't have a mortgage. And, uh, you know, I think that that's a terrific pushback to what's a common thing of having a 30 year mortgage, you know, mm-hmm. or, yeah. or that you're never going to pay off. I right. mean, most, most people at least, you know, so I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's I again, I'm remiss that it's included, I guess, you know, because I feel like you're talking about even a small number of home buyers and and just a tiny like I can't even imagine there's probably 10 tiny home users that are that are that would consider themselves minimalist. It's it's maybe a secondary home that they take on vacation or, or an office or whatever. I know that uh, um, Michael Pollan, the food writer, he works in uh, maybe it's a cabin, but it looks like the, the photograph of it looks like a tiny house and it's just his office. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. I'm not against, uh, you know, simplicity. Right. And, and yeah. I just uh, I think we ought to be aware of oh, sure. uh, of, yeah. of the mode of the underlying structures and motivations. And and I do think when I see and maybe it's because I only see it on HGTV um, that I mean, I just see this. How quickly does your blood crest. pressure arc when oh, HGV Lord. comes on? Yeah, <laughs> pretty, pretty bad. We don't get it here at home. So yeah. it's only at my mom's house. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, not, uh, it's not, not good, uh, not good for me. Um, but we do have another ad, uh, oh, do, you have awesome. a, do you have 45 seconds uh, sure for do. another ad here? Um, make sure I don't play another clip here. Um, this one is for a product called Salvo. The Sectarian Review is brought to you by Salvo. You know how hard it is to keep up with the latest controversies on social media? Crafting the perfect blend of facts, reason, and wit to silence those stubborn Facebook friends is time-consuming and difficult, but Salvo makes it easy. Just take our short, fun survey, and Salvo will compare uh, trending topics with your political, religious, sporting, and subcultural allegiances to predict which disputes you are likely to engage in. Salvo sends you a free daily summary of what's ahead on social media and everything you need to dominate the comment threads. (laughs) Then maximize your firepower with Salvo Pro. Salvo Pro links directly to your social media accounts and custom tailors its real-time strategies to what people are actually saying in your feeds. You can even escalate with the Salvo Strike Force, which puts our powerful AI to work firing devastating broadsides on your behalf. And for a limited time, Sectarian Review listeners can enjoy a no-risk 30-day trial of Salvo Pro absolutely free. Sign up today at salvo.com with with the offer Sectarian. Salvo, lay waste. 
<laughs> I love our listeners. This is so much fun. Uh, and please send us more ads. They don't have to be about uh, virtue signaling and whatnot and internet fighting. Uh, you don't but, have to uh, say the name. Is that the same writer? <laughs> no, uh, it's oh, a different wow, writer. Okay. Uh, yeah, we had two uh, submissions Stiff so competition. far. competition. I'm going to have to get in on this. The, the first two, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm going to leave the writers anonymous for now. And, and at some point I'll, I'll write, I'll publish these to the website so people can judge and we'll have an election and uh, two people will get some wonderful uh, coasters. Coosies? Oh, coasters. I said coosies. Coasters. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> coasters. Um, well, um, does anybody else have anything they want to add to this uh, conversation? We're uh, getting towards where we should be wrapping up. I I thought we kind of touched on it at one point. Rob mentioned kids and how it's impossible to be a minimalist with kids. But um, I, I think it's important to think about children and how much they consume. And we, we didn't touch on that when we were talking about consumerism. Um, and just a few statistics that I got out of my um, – when I taught global business, the book was called Global, and it was by Mike Peng, P-E-N-G. Um, and I these statistics, they were actually shared to th- make you think about supply chain management, which I guess does have some impact on um, people around the world and, and workers. But um, but it just struck me as a, a consumer and impacted the way that we shopped this Christmas um, unsuccessfully. Um, I'll get to that in a second. Um, half of all toys sales for a given year in the U.S. occur during the month before Christmas. So half of the toys that we buy in the U.S. occur before Christmas, the month before Christmas. American kids consume half of the world's toys, and virtually all toys are made outside of the U.S. Um, so if you do some math in your head there real quick, you realize that 25% of the world toy out- outputs are in one country in one month. Um and I, I think earlier in the show we shared that the U.S. is like 5% of the world's population. Yeah, so I think that was right. that means that 5% of the world's population's children are consuming half of the world's toys in one month um, in the U.S. Or, um, or 25%, I guess, of the world's toys um, in one month. And so um, I just think that when you think about that and in the the video and i didn't get the statistics down but they talked about how marketing has changed to children and that they used to market to the parents and the moms but now they how much more money is spent on marketing to children um as a parent i think we've become aware of that and how many trinkets there are um when you go to mcdonald's there's a a toy that comes with it thank you chick-fil-a for letting us change that to ice cream um which i have my own thoughts on sugar too but that can be another documentary um (laughs) podcast um you know there's just so many opportunities for toys and and things for children um and and really just when you start thinking about again when you think about the fact that a lot of this stuff is made by children around the world rob mentioned bangladesh um a lot of the laws in, in Bangladesh are um, children 14 years and older are allowed to work, six in average, and they're, they are currently working an average of 64 hours a week. This was um, statistics by the UN. Um, some kids are working 100 to 110 hours a week. We wouldn't want an adult to work that much. You would like right. laugh at an adult who did who worked that much. Um, and usually they're working an average of $2 earning an average of $2 a day. Um, and a lot of the, the toys are made by children. Um, the legal age is 
14, but kids ages 12 and 13, they're allowed to do light work, which is considered 42 hours a week. Um, but obviously there are kids, there are kids that are as young as six that are employed, they found when they, they went into some factories. Um, so obviously the rules are not being followed in places like Bangladesh and probably other countries as well. And so, um, you know, again, we have all our children consuming so many toys, but then, um, you know, children around the world are working in factories trying to make them sometimes under rush conditions trying to produce them in time for Christmas. And at Christmas time, Dan and I had read some of these articles. Dan and I tried to find things that were not made in China and or Bangladesh. Um, and most of the things that we found were we minimized how much we bought for our children at Christmas time. Um, but I think we were only able to find one thing that was made in the U.S. and it was a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And most of the toys that we bought were made in in other countries. It's very difficult nowadays to find something that's made here. And I think that the introduction of consumerism basically to children has other effects. I mean, I, we try not to buy too much stuff for our kids. Unnamed grandparents sometimes uh, make that difficult. And so they come home with armloads full of stuff, right? And everything seems disposable, I think. And I, I was just thinking about this today. This last week, our, our cat died uh, and, and it was very sad. Um, but like the kids immediately want to go out and get a new cat, right? Uh, like before I, he died. They yeah. Were yeah. And I'm just like, uh, no, that's that's like life isn't disposable. Right. I mean, we have to feel the pain of this for a while before we get over it. Right. And so um, I, I wonder if that was a development based on, you know, just the American idea of objects is yeah, now transcending to life. Yeah. When you think of, um, I mean, as a parent, um, disposable diapers are something that have come into our world. But then um, I remember as a parent seeing disposable bibs and mm -hmm. um, I mean, the amount of things that they make disposable nowadays, disposable plates and, um, you know, just things that are marketed to you as something that you don't have to keep or that you can just immediately toss away. And, and this is just normal. I, I, I had parents, other moms say to me, isn't this great? They've got disposable bibs. You don't even have to wash them. And it's like, <laughs> how hard is that to throw in with your wash right. and just have, I mean, we had a lot of bibs. We did not have the, we did not follow project 33 with bibs. We had a lot of bibs, but it wasn't that hard to throw the, you know, throw it in with your wash. And, um, you know, in the end we got rid of them. We didn't pass them on to somebody else, but, but they weren't made of paper and we weren't throwing away four bibs a day every time your kid ate. So um, I think yeah. disposability is a whole nother topic that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's totally related though. Right. Yeah. Um, Rob. Oh, I, one thing, Wendell Berry, who's uh, just a wonderful writer right. um, talks about, cause we were talking about supply and, and use of uh, natural resources. Uh, sometimes I get the sense that particularly with oil, uh, the conversation goes to, we have tons of oil here in America. If we could just access that super cheaply and, and that's the answer. If we just have so much of something, then we, we wouldn't have to have this conversation. We wouldn't have to obsess about not using a lot. And Wendell Berry in The Art of the Commonplace writes about this use. And I thought this was so terrific. I, I'm going to wedge it in here, whether or not it's relevant. Uh, he <laughs> says, the idea that when faced with abundance, one should consume abundantly. An idea that has survived to become the basis of our present economy. It's neither natural or civilized. And even from a practical point of view, it is to the last degree brutalizing and stupid. I think 
this answer to our problem, even talking about minimalism, people blame, well, the economy's bad. That's why, you know, you've got these gentrified, you know, hippies wanting to live with less. And it's because they don't really have options. I think, um, I think the civilization of man to move towards a more diligent use of abundance speaks to, I think our intelligence. I mean, it, it, are we are we being smarter with what we presently have? And and I certainly don't want people to think too. And listening to this is somehow against business or buying things. I'm for craftsmanship, and you can pretty much preclude most of the stuff that sh- that's comes comes from abroad from even being purchased if you want craftsman. If you buy craftsmanship, and I'm not talking the brand of tools. I'm talking about uh, if you if you buy craftsmanship, you can virtually much assure that that it's not going to come from Bangladesh or China because they they simply don't make that kind of stuff. It's not really with. I mean, maybe in country there's selling it to each other but as far as like what they're shipping over here uh you know a lot of times what people fail to see is you know buy something that maybe costs a little bit more which is i mean it's crazier than me riding around town on a scooter to tell somebody that <laughs> in this area it's like what are you talking about don't spend that much on that and we're we even religiousize that and so you're a bad steward if you're spending 30 dollars on a t-shirt so what's going to last me longer and i'm going to repair it which is something that's completely unheard of sure so i could go on but yeah know, you get it but that's uh that's that's another throwback to our shop class of soulcraft discussion. Um, I, I think I lent you that book. I hope you get to it at some point. Uh, I, I'm not uh, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. I don't want it back. But yeah, uh, that that book was really uh, influential in the way I think about such things. And, and I was just looking. I got Rob is a, a pencil fetishist. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Of pencils. By the way, these come from abroad. So, but uh, you but know, they're they're like yeah. uh, most of our pencils, super do. nice pencils. Right? Yeah, they're sure. I guess high so, yeah. quality <laughs> pencils, right? I mean, <laughs> even down to that level, he's got this sort of uh, adm- admiration for for quality and craftsmanship, and 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 this is I suspect is not a pencil that you can trace its constituent parts to 9,000 different places, <laughs> no, right? It's come this straight is- from Japan. It's actually, it's a recycled, they use recycled parts from the pencil factory. It's a Tombow recycle. Um, and it just has a real great natural finish to it. It's yeah, it's just, it's a pleasure to use. It's got a nice dark lead from, uh, uh from the Tombow factory. So yeah, yeah, but yeah, it was shipped. Sorry. Yeah. Well, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, global business is not all bad. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and to go along the lines of, um, you know, we're not advocating for not buying anything at all and um, in craftsmanship, both Annie Leonard from The Story of Stuff and then Juliet Shore, who I can't believe we went through this whole yeah. thing and, and I didn't mention um, because uh, I started paying more attention to her after having watched Minimalism. She's um, uh, an economist at Boston University and um, has a lot of great things to say. Um, both of them, I think, would advocate for trying to figure out w- to a way to make things better. And um, Annie Leonard, in one of the story of stuff, one um, talks about she she talks about like the the old computer and the way that every year they come out with a new computer and there's like a new microchip. And obviously, that's a little dated because she's it's the the kind that you know you would pull off the big the tower the thing one that sat CPU, on your desk yeah. and you would pull out the cpu um but she also talks about it with cell phones and um instead of throwing it away can can the you know the manufacturers make it in such a way that when there's an update which are necessary could they could you take a part out and put a new part in and then you would have the updated phone but you don't have to throw away the whole thing and i think there's there's a lot to be said for for making things in, in that kind of way. And I think rethinking the way that we 
we do things. And um, Juliet Shore had a quote, um, the technologies of the revolution, which took nature as if it were endless and in free supply, and we could pollute the atmosphere without, well, without ever paying attention to it, pollute our rivers, cut down our trees. Our technology is all based on that idea, which is a crazy idea, as we devour the climate and run down our economic, economic systems and so forth to get a new kind of production and consumption system which actually respects and restore the earth we are going to need to do a lot of investing but that is investing on a local scale at a smaller scale it is a whole lot whole different economic model than the one we've been using and so just starting to think about things in a different way yeah and, and so. being more engaged in the material objects that we that we use right mm-hmm. um, um and not and that's the, a better form i think she's the one actually used the, the distinction that brought up the distinction between materialism as consumerism and materialism as a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to be fully engaged with the the lead of your pencil, like you know what I'm saying, uh, yeah, down yeah, down to that true. level. Yeah. Um, I actually care about physical things, which is soul craft. I'll get it to you. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Just listen yeah. to the show. You don't yeah, have to read it. Right. <laughs> so, um, well, uh, guys, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, a bit of a long episode, but not that long. Um, apologies. Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, We'll do something like this somewhere down the line. If you want to, we've threw out a lot of uh, references in the show, and I've been trying to jot them down. And uh, if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, uh, you'll find our show notes, and I'll have links to as much of this as I can find. Uh, Dan Harris is 10% happier. The Century of the Self video, uh, McMansion Hell, the great blog there, and Project 333, uh, stuff like that I'll, I'll try and, uh, and link to if you want to follow up on this stuff. Um, as always, um, please get in touch with us uh, via our Facebook page. If you like that Facebook page, I think more people will probably like the sh- or discover the show. Um, comment on it so more people see what's going on uh, and talk back to us. I think it's a lot of fun uh, to have this post-conversation that often comes up uh, via that um, uh, platform and uh, we're also on Twitter uh, we have a Gmail address that you can find on the website uh, everyone will always tell you you've heard it in every podcast go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get it and like and rate the show uh, do that please if you haven't done it yet I would really appreciate it um, in the movie there is a uh, very interesting clip uh, of a speech by President Jimmy Carter uh, which you would never hear uh, I can't imagine a president saying things like this to the American people today. Um, but uh, we're going to, uh, I found a, or my wife actually, uh, Kim found a uh, YouTube video um, where someone has sort of remixed that uh, speech with some dramatic, although slightly overmixed music. Um, and so I, I'm going to send us out on that, but uh, it's some pretty wise words from uh, a former president. Uh, and thanks for listening. The threat is nearly invisible. In ordinary ways, it is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. In a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities, and our faith in God, too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we've discovered that owning things
satisfied our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no confidence or purpose. As you know, there is a growing disrespect for government and for churches and for schools, the news media, and other institutions. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth, and it is a warning. I do not promise you that this struggle for freedom will be easy. I do not promise a quick way out of our nation's problems. When the truth is that the only way out is an all-out effort. What I do promise you is that I will lead our fight and I will enforce fairness in our struggle and I will ensure honesty. Little by little, we can and we must rebuild our confidence. In closing, let me say this. will do my best, but I will not do it alone.